Welcome to Kaya, the college and young adult ministry of Midtown Baptist Temple, a ministry seeking to pursue a deeper faith in Jesus Christ through God's Word, fellowship, and prayer. Man, I had a good time today, though. It was a uh... It was fun to be here with you guys, and, uh, and I don't know, man, isn't the ministry just a good time? Isn't it just a good time to spend time with, with your friends and, and family, and I don't know. I was talking to Brandon earlier, and it's like, man, where else would you want to be? Where else would you want to be? And, then, and you know what's funny about that? As much as I desire to, to spend time with Brandon, years ago, I knew that most of the people that I that I grew up in ministry with that I would actually not get to spend my life with them. I I realized that at a pretty early age and then um, after discipling Brandon it became pretty evident that God was doing the same thing again and and the reason why is because God scatters his people. He scatters his people for the mission and uh, I'll tell you guys as as great as this is oh man um, I just desire to see God, do a wonderful work in your lives so that in five years, in six years, in ten years, uh, as this ministry continues to flourish, and some of you may still be here, and I'm not kidding about that. Some of you actually may still be investing. Yes, you're, you're 20, you're 18, you're, you're 22, 23, 24. You may be 28, 29, 30 years old, still investing in young adults, but I'm telling you, some of you guys, you won't. And there'll be two reasons for that. Either you have found another pursuit, um, and usually, uh, man, I think it was Eric who, who taught on this a while back, and maybe I'm screwing it up, probably I am, uh, but one time you talked about exit ramps, and I can't remember when that was, but um, that even God will give you exit ramps, and obviously our flesh and the world and the devil will give you exit ramps. There will be exit ramps, there will be opportunities by which you can Stop pursuing the mission of God. And, uh, you know, I, I've always thought that there's a few that, that are pretty clear. When you turn 16, you get your car, maybe you get a job, you start having some money, you start having some independence. Maybe when you're 18, you go off to school, and all of a sudden you can see, yes, you are, you are following after the purposes of God, uh, but now there is an exit ramp, there is an opportunity Maybe it's not when you go to college, but maybe when you get that degree, and now you have a real job, and uh, that career starts to really take off, and it really begins to demand of your attention, and I am telling you guys right now that there are so many people in this room, as I say these words, you say, Psh, not me, Psh, not me, and Brandon, how many people do we know that have said those very same words, not me, and sure enough, they got a job. And then after that, the job starts to become hectic, busy, uh, consuming, and uh, not that they're living in sin per se, although the Word of God says in Romans 14, 23, that whatsoever is done without faith is sin. And so you have people that can take that X-ramp, and obviously marriage is one where um, you become so consumed with your spouse uh, that rather than seeing marriage as an opportunity to fulfill the Great Commission, you actually find yourself being consumed with that person, which becomes idolatry. And what we do on the outside, we say, what a great marriage. 
what a wonderful marriage. Can you see how much he loves her? Can you see how, how de- devoted she is to him? And they become so um, infatuated with one another that they can't see beyond their own will towards one another that the will of God is now no longer present. And the rest of us, we're enamored by it. We're thinking it's great. Look at how, look at how wonderfully in love they are. All while the mission of God is dying in their life. And then obviously kids. Kids is the one that really hits a lot of people. Um, and it's just because I just don't have time. And at this point you guys are saying, no, that's not me, that's not me. But I'm telling you guys, uh, the exit ramps get easier and easier to take and they look more appropriate and actually even God-ordained. They just do. And so when I look at a group like this, there are two options for you right now. Either you can... Maybe you are the people that continue to minister to young adults here. Um, but maybe you guys are the ones that, are, that you've taken an exit ramp. But maybe there is a third one. And what if God would use this group right here to actually be a part of a church planting movement throughout the country and throughout the world? Now, I'll say this, that I don't believe this is an easy task, like Brandon was saying this morning. It won't be easy. And it will, it, will, it will require dying to self. It will require listening to your pastor when at times you flat out don't want to. In, in situations where, where now not only Brandon, but even Sam doesn't understand you. At Living Faith, some, there's going to be points where you think that, that I'm even against you. Guys, I just, why are you here? Why are you here tonight? And there's nothing wrong with being a part of Midtown or Living Faith or, you know, out in Tampa or Boston or or wherever God has you. There's nothing wrong with that. But I'm telling you guys, there is a world out there that is lost and dying and going to hell. And can we start making some plans right now to reach them? Can we start making some plans right now? What is the plan right now? And you don't have to devise it yourself. That's the cool thing about it. As you submit to the structure of the local church that you are a part of, as you are submitted to that structure, God provides you with these padded walls, if you will. You have the protection of pastors and elders and deacons and all these individuals who can help you along in the maturation of your faith so when the time comes and as God speaks to you, as Pastor Sam Miles would always say, God's about to send his mass email out. And all of us begin to hear that as well. You guys with me? There's going to come a day where you have to consider that you might actually be having to go alone as well as your friend in the Lord has to go alone, and yet you still are serving the Lord, but it might have to be in different places. Are you guys ready for that? Are you ready for that? The answer is no. Um, but are you praying to be? I was thinking about what, what Brandon said this, this morning, and I'm not trying to review too much, Brandon, but I just wanted to bring some cohesiveness to it. I just put something up on the slide real fast. I, I didn't, actually. Um, You know, Brandon was saying, are you willing to be alone in a world where consensus 
and collaboration are viewed as an ethical practice. Do you guys understand that? I, I grew up still in, in a generation where a lot of my education was found on individual effort. And there's goods and bads to that. I'm not trying to poo-poo uh, collaboration or consensus. Those things are good. But I'm telling you this, that it has no longer just become an educational practice. It has become an ethical practice. In that, are you willing to stand on a promise that everyone else rejects? When the world has consensus, when the world is collaborating together to produce a certain outcome, and then as you hear of that argument, when you hear of that uh, 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 proposal, all of a sudden you go back to the word and you realize that doesn't match. It doesn't match. Are you willing to be that remnant that's going to stand alone on the promises of God? Brandon brought up the notion of when God is forced to judge, he brought up that, that, that part in his message this morning, and the question I thought is, will you also judge? Not others, but when God is, a, is forced to judge this world or ourselves in some capacity, are you also willing to judge? Not people, but yourself. Are you willing to judge your own actions, who you are? I'd ask if you would, would you please turn to Deuteronomy chapter 30? This is before my, my message, but uh, one of the songs that you guys sang this, this morning really uh, was uh, on my heart, and so I, I looked it up earlier today, and it's one of the songs that you guys uh, created. Deuteronomy 30, 15 through 20. And in verse 15 and 16, what we see is a worthy pursuit, and it says, See, I have set before thee this day, Kaya, OTM, uh, Tampa, uh, Boston, Young adults all around. God has set before you this day life and good and death and evil in that I command thee this day to love the Lord thy God, to walk in his ways and to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments that thou mayest live and multiply and the Lord thy God shall bless thee in the land whither thou goest to possess it. And so verse 15 and 16, we see this worthy pursuit. And the pursuit is this. I command you this day that you would love me. Would you love me? Would you keep my commandments so that you'd live, so that I could bless you? Verse 17, we see, but, but if, if your heart if your heart is going to turn away, but if thine heart turn away so that thou wilt not hear, but shall be drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, oh no, here's the choice. Here's the choice. You say, well, we're not serving other gods. Yes, you are. Don't pretend. I know I am. I know I, know I have the same temptations the same pursuits that you do, the same things that they might have, they might have different skin, that might have, they might have a different look in some regards, but, but we all have these idols in our lives by which we're chasing after and we're pursuing. We all have those things. 
He says then in verse 18, if you do, if you choose to turn away, what is that? You are pursuing God. It's so clear, guys, that so many of us, we desire to pursue God, but he says, but if you turn away, if you turn away, I denounce unto you this day that ye shall surely perish. Not a threat, not because he's angry, not because he hates you, but because it is the effect of your life decision. And that ye shall not prolong your days upon the land whither thou passest over Jordan to go to possess it. And then verse 19. This is where God says, so you have a choice. You have a choice. I call heaven and earth to record this day against you that I have set before you life and death. I've set before you blessing and cursing. Therefore choose life that both thou and thy seed may live, that thou mayest love the Lord thy God and that thou mayest obey his voice and that thou mayest cleave unto him for he is thy life and the length of thy days that thou mayest dwell in the land which the Lord swear unto thy fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to give them. And so guys, right now we all have a choice. You sang the words. You sang the words this morning. Do you guys know that? That many times when we praise God and we sing the words that we are announcing our proclamation to him. You sang the words, and so now is God, God is saying, okay, you sang those words, now the choice is yours. Will you cleave to me? Will you love me? Will you obey my voice? For I am your life. Last evening, we, we spoke of a worthy pursuit. We spoke of this worthy pursuit, and that pursuit was God. That pursuit was God. You guys can continue to move along if you need. Last evening we spoke of a worthy pursuit and that pursuit was God. Thank you. Good job. More than the things of God or the work of God that we can and we can make the choice to pursue after Him. But that we should simply find ourselves not pursuing even and I know this sounds backwards, and I pray that you can hear uh, what I'm trying to say is more than you pursuing the work of God, more than you pursuing church planting, more than you pursuing being a missionary, more than you pursuing being a discipler, more than you pursuing to be a Bible study leader, more than you pursuing to be on the stage, more than you pursuing all of the things that we pursue. All of the things of God, more than us pursuing those things, first would we simply find ourselves pursuing Him. And out of that, out of that singular pursuit, out of that fellowship, quite literally, virtue springs out. Out of our fellowship with God, virtue then springs out of our lives. We become the vessel by which God continues to pour in. And as the vessel becomes full, guess what happens? It overflows. And that vessel by which God is filling overflows with Him in every aspect of our lives. This virtue now that is springing out is not something that you and I possess. It's not in and of ourselves, but it pours out as we hold on to the vesture of Christ. 
If we are going to accomplish what we desire to accomplish according to the Great Commission, it's going to mean that we simply and powerfully and strongly with every ounce of being that we have grab onto his vesture and never let go. It's got to be that. That's it. Tonight I'd like to continue looking at this topic of pursuit and I'm praying that God would use these two messages. The message from last night, the message from tonight, and obviously what God has given Brandon as well, that God would use these messages to really truly set you free. So many times we as Christians, and, and usually, guys, it's not Christians that don't care. It's Christians that do care. You know what our pursuit becomes? Performance. And, and I pursue performance rather than the person of Jesus. Guys, it's not, it's not hard to go down that path because, honestly, what, what is performance? Is it not just the desire for you to please God and, and serve him and do well before him and his presence. I mean, it, see, it's not like, it's not uh, uh, some maniacal thing. I'm going to perform for God. I'm going I'm to perform for these people. Now, maybe, maybe that is someone in here, but for the most part, I don't think that's our heart. I don't. And yet, so quickly, we can become desirous of performance, not knowing and guys, I'm just telling you right now, I am praying that the message tonight will free you from that bondage, that it will free you from all of the other pursuits, and I don't know what those pursuits are, but that you would be freed from those pursuits this evening, and that you would be propelled onto that right course of pursuit, that we would abandon whatever other pursuit we came here with, that we would set it down if this is the altar tonight, I am praying by the end of this service, and yes, I am praying that people will make choices. I'm praying that we will make decisions. I'm not crying out for an emotional response, but I am saying right now, would we collectively as a church, a collection, a fellowship of churches, lay those things down that we brought in? And then we leave, and as we're walking away, we're going, why did I bring that here in the first place? Why was that the thing that I brought here? I don't know how many times I've gone on, on uh, mission trips or, or discipleship trips or, or, or vacations or whatever, and, and my wife Caroline always says this, and I bring all these books, you know, and she's like, what are you doing? You got to know my wife. She's like the most sweet, wonderful person, but she knows I'm not going to read these books. These books are, I, I'm, I'm working out. That's all I'm doing. I'm putting my backpack on. Oh, man, you know, it's like hold me back. I'm like, this is good. Man, I, I bring stuff to India for crying out loud, and you've got to carry everything when you're going on these trips. Isn't that funny what we do, though? But I think I need this. Right? I think I need this in here. That was kind of a Brandon, wasn't it? That was kind of... Anyway, no, but isn't it true? Am I, am, I, am I the only one? 
Don't we bring junk with us that we think we'll need or that we think might help us and then all of a sudden when we hear God and we enter into his presence and we actually spend time with God, with the people of God and the praises of God, we go, oh man, that was dumb. That was stupid. That's me carrying all my books, all these weights. I bring all these weights and I have so many good intentions until finally I realize this doesn't make any sense, does it? No, it doesn't. Leave that at home. Or maybe better yet, right now, we need to leave this at the altar. We need, to, we need to leave the things that we brought with us. The fear, the insecurity, the pride, the pompousness, the respecter of persons, all of the things that you know, the temptations, the carnality, the one foot in uh, the church, the one foot in the world. I look around here, and I've been gone from Midtown Baptist Temple uh, for a little over three and a half years, and I, I don't know half of you guys. What that tells me is that there are so many people here right now that are growing in the Lord, and so many young people that are growing in the Lord. I'm sure that many of us have brought things that we need to let go of, that we need to let go of tonight. Sometimes we will believe that some of these causes are worthy and I'm telling you guys this, if that pursuit doesn't revolve around God alone, I'm praying that God would give us the grace to just drop it. I'm especially praying for those of you who desire to lead others in the Lord, that God would give you his grace to receive what I'm sharing with you this evening. And so with all of that said, I'd like to ask you to turn to Genesis chapter 2 and 3. I'm going to have most everything on the board uh, but I'd ask that you have that available to you as well. When we read these two chapters, we hear of God's clear instruction in chapter 2. For some of you guys that have read uh, the book of Genesis or you've read the creation account, uh, you read through Genesis 1 and 2, and it's a beautiful story of how God, uh, in his wonderful plan, created a world by which his commission could be found in mankind. Be fruitful and multiply and what? And replenish the earth. And so we hear in chapter 2 of this clear instruction by God and then in chapter 3 we hear of man's dreadful fall into sin. It's the saddest of moments for the human race. And guys, here's the thing that I want you to consider tonight the saddest of all moments for the human race was tied around, of all things, a fascination with knowledge. Of all things, the downfall, the downfall of all humanity began with mankind pursuing knowledge. And so as a father speaks to his children, as a Shepherd would speak to the Lord's sheep. Please hear me now. Please hear me. The pursuit of knowledge is one of the oldest pursuits known to man. Second only to Adam naming the animals and his relationship with Eve. There is no other pursuit that is recorded in the scriptures previous to this. We have in chapter 2 that Adam begins naming all the animals and then after that we see that he receives his wife. 
And then beginning in chapter 3, we realize this fascination with knowledge takes hold. The pursuit of knowledge is one of the oldest pursuits known to man. In fact, it needs to be clear that the pursuit of knowledge, it became the destruction of the entire human race. And I know that some of you guys aren't really connecting the dots right now as to where I'm trying to go with this. You're saying, well, that was, that was mankind, and they were trying to pursue knowledge without God, and I get, get all that. But I'm saying this, as a Christian, you need to start thinking about this in a contextual framework as to how you will see the profitability of knowledge in your life. The pursuit of knowledge, it became the destruction of the entire human race. And yet today, especially in the Western world, we celebrate our ability to gather and collect it at an alarming rate. We have more information and knowledge than we ever had before and the multiplying factors are exponential. I mean, it's, it's getting be beyond comprehension. It already has. And yet, in fitting fashion, even though on Google or Wikipedia or all these sites, all these blogs and all these uh, 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 sites that are you know, answering people's questions left and right, It seems that even though we have more and more and more, what's the answer? That we can't have enough. I want more. Am I the only one? Aren't you frustrated when you, when you go to Google and it doesn't give you the answer? You're disappointed when Wikipedia doesn't have at least some kind of, a, of, a, of an answer for you? What gives? We're, dis we're frustrated when the answers can't come to us, when the knowledge can't come to us, when information can't come to us. And so in fitting fashion, I want more. It never satisfies. The first mention of the word no, K-N-O-W, is found in Genesis 3-5. And it should be noted that Satan is the first to use the word. What do we know about first mentions? Anyone? What do we know? It, it establishes the context of that word. It defines the word. And so we know that God is the author of his book. And we know that when he uses a word, that he will then uh, define that word. And we see that in the first mention of that word, typically what we find is its definition. And so we have right here in Genesis 3, 5, that the first mention of the word no. Who is the first one to use the word No. It's Satan. Satan is the first to use the word. And that the word was used, this word no was used to begin a rebellion against God. The word no, to know something. I just want to know this. It was used to begin a rebellion against God. Verse 5, for God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened and you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. In this first instance of the word, we see Satan speaking on behalf of God. He's saying, let me tell you what God is really saying. Does that sound familiar? Yea, hath God said? 
And Satan is questioning God. And then after he questions the validity of God's word, he says, did God really say that? Did he really mean that? Then when he does speak on behalf of God, he begins to misconstrue his words. And Satan leads Eve down this path of misapplication of right knowledge. Just like Job's friends who spoke misapplied truth to Job, their words became incredibly toxic and harmful to the hearer. They knew a lot. God wasn't impressed, but they knew a lot. Job knew a lot. But in the end, what did it, what did it accomplish? A toxic relationship. In the end, Adam and Eve's eyes definitely were opened, but in doing so, everything they thought to gain by accessing this knowledge was now lost. Their desire for knowledge was greater than their desire for God. Hello, Bible study leader. Hello, discipler. Hello, pastor. In this pursuit to have more, to know more, they lost it all. They lost it all. And could it be that in everything we gain by our false pursuits, that we likewise will find ourselves losing the one thing that can give us life? In our pursuit of knowledge, we lose the one thing that provides life. Listen, what the church has, what, what, the, what the body of Christ has, is a relationship with the Creator. What the church has right now, we have, if you know Jesus Christ, you have a relationship with the Creator. And you can go to the next slide. What the church has is a relationship with the Creator. And here's the thing, though. So often, instead of providing the world a glimpse into that relationship, into that relationship, instead of providing the world an image, an understanding of what it looks like to be a child of God, a child of God, not just in phrase, but actually considering what that means, that God is my Father, I'm His child, I belong to Him, my life has been bought with a price, therefore, I do not possess this body anymore, it belongs to Him. And in understanding that, instead of me promising some type of a religion or some type of a textbook answer, we reduce the mighty word of God into being some form of a, uh, I don't know, algebra book. Like, well, let me tell you all the, this is what the Bible says. And, and we, you have Jesus in your life, you know him. And yet because we've fallen so in love with all the things that we can know about God, we've actually lost interest in the fact that we have God in our lives and we can know him personally. Has your worthy pursuit of God been replaced by a poor alternative? Would you please check out Genesis 48, 19? I don't think I have that um, on the board. Genesis 48, 19. I'll give you some context of this. In Genesis 48, 19, Joseph, based upon, guys, listen, based upon Joseph's knowledge of the situation, Joseph didn't want his dad, Jacob, 
to bless his sons in the manner he was choosing. If you guys remember the story, what does Jacob do? Joseph sets his two sons before him, and Jacob does this. It's like, what are you doing? And Joseph, Joseph is like, you know, picture of the Holy Ghost and all these great things, an amazing man of God, and he's going, what's up, pops? Like, hey, uh, hey, uh, um, don't. <laughs> like, stop. Like, this is my firstborn. And Joseph, he has this knowledge of what, it, what should happen. I know what's supposed to happen. I know what's supposed to happen, Dad. You guys catching on? I know what's supposed to happen, Father. I can tell you what you're supposed to do. Uh-oh. How often do we talk to God that way? Let me tell you what, what needs to happen, God. This is how my life needs to pan out. This is what I'm doing. I'm going to school for this. I'm dating her. I'm doing this. I want that. And this is how, God, you can move through my life so that you can receive the ultimate glory. And God says, what? Pardon me? 48, 19, it says, and his father, I'm sorry, how about uh, 17? And when Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand upon the head of Ephraim, it, it displeased him. And he held up his father's hand to remove it. Guys, watch out. Watch out. What, what was Joseph removing? The hand of God's blessing. The father's blessing on his child. And Joseph was getting in the way of that. Christian, you guys hearing me? Because you know better. And so we are getting in the way of God the Father and we are removing his hand from blessing a child and, we, and he removes it from Ephraim's hand, head onto Manasseh's head. No, God, this is how it goes. And Joseph said unto his father, Not so, my Lord, for this is the firstborn. Put thy right hand upon his head. And his father refused and said, I know it, son. I know it. God's like... I know, I know that this is what makes sense to you right now. He also should become a people, and he also shall be great, but truly his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his seed will be, shall become a multitude of nations. And he blessed them that day, saying, In thee shall Israel bless, saying, God, make thee as Ephraim and Manasseh, and set Ephraim before Manasseh. What do we have in 48 verse 19? Jacob refuses Joseph's instruction. He is a picture of God the Father in this instance. He refuses Joseph's knowledge and says, I know, son, I know. And yet I will choose to do what doesn't make sense to you today. What doesn't make sense to you, according to your knowledge, I'm about to do something. And I want to tell you right now that God is wanting to do that in your life as well. But some of us are saying, not so, Lord. Not so, that's not my plan for you. That's not my plan. God, this is what I intend to do. I'm doing this, God. So often when we claim to know something or when we pursue knowledge or to know anything, guys, we got to make sense or make sure that we are understanding according to what God wants us to know and how he wants us to pursue that. The first mention of the word knowledge is found in Genesis 2.9 and then secondly in verse 17. Check this out. The first reference of no, who's, who's the first person to say no? Satan. You know who the second person is actually? God. You know who the third person is? Man. That's kind of interesting. 
That's free. You can take that with you. Genesis 2, 9 and 17, it says, and out of the ground, this is, this is knowledge, right? We see that, that, that knowledge is first viewed, knowledge is first viewed in comparison to the tree of life. And then in verse 17, it is viewed in a negative context as something God was wanting to restrict. And out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food and the tree of life, also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Verse 17, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. In these two verses, the very uh, first two instances of this word knowledge, we see, number one, it was viewed in comparison, contrast, to the tree of life. And secondly, we see that the tree of knowledge was viewed within a negative context by which something God was wanting to to restrict. So from the very beginning, God was giving man, what? Two pursuits. God was giving you two pursuits. Man had two options. There are two pursuits for the child of God. There are two pursuits for the world. There are two pursuits. Life. Or knowledge, life, or death. The pursuit of of, of knowledge of the tree of good and evil and the pursuit of life, what God was saying right there is you choose. Right here we have the tree of life and we have the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Even in a perfect world, in order to protect man from his own undoing, God gave directions and limitations, even in the Garden of Eden. Even in the Garden of Eden, a perfect environment, God gave direction and instruction and limitations to show man how he could live and what it would be like to die. Key point number one. The pursuit of life rests on the promises of God with God. The pursuit of life, it rests on the promises of God with God. The pursuit of knowledge began assuming God's word and God himself were not enough. And that was the error. Pursuing knowledge to the exclusion of pursuing God. Eve pursued this venture assuming that she was lacking something. As if God was holding out on her. When Satan approached her and he deceived her, The way in which he did it is he said, Eve, listen, if you continue to go down this path, I am telling you this right now, God is holding out on you. He is keeping you from something you deserve. And man, hook, line, seeker, she took it. And so she quickly realized in her own knowledge that God must be holding out on me. When in all reality that God had already given her everything she needed, she was complete and full in him. She had his word and she had his presence, walking daily in the garden, and yet she desired something more. And may I suggest that this not only happens in the ministry, but it is prevalent. It seems so apparent that when given the choice, when mankind is given the choice between the tree of knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life, what do we choose? keep going back to it, don't we? We just constantly keep going back to it. When God gives us two choices, two choices, choose life 
Choose me. Pursue me. Christian, I'm not talking to the lost world right now. I'm talking to you. Pursue me. And we go, well, yeah, 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 but I really want to pursue this. That we keep going back to the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And in contrast, we see that, you know, guys, Jesus is the only one. Do you guys know that Jesus is the only one who sought out the tree of life? When Jesus had a choice, he took on that cross. He carried his tree of life, which at first we saw as what? A tree of death. But in hanging on that cross, what did it become for all mankind? A tree of life for all humanity. Only Christ is the one to choose that tree, isn't he? And isn't it interesting that throughout Jesus' ministry, that Jesus as a carpenter took dead trees and made them usable again? Isn't it interesting that the carpenter, the carpenter's son, he would take dead trees, trees that had no life in them again, and he'd bring them back to life. And yet we keep choosing the, the wrong tree, don't we? Here's the thing, though, guys. I also find it interesting that it's not that God doesn't want us to have knowledge. In fact, the next time the word knowledge appears, the next time the word knowledge appears in the Bible... It is dealing with the building of his tabernacle. So don't miss this. You guys look like you're getting tired. Stay with me. Or I'm going to start screaming again. No one wants that. The next time you see the word knowledge from Genesis 3 is all the way to Exodus 31. And it's with the building of his tabernacle. The tabernacle was the place of God's dwelling. What was the Garden of Eden again? Wasn't that a place where God walked with man in the coolness of the day? Where mankind could walk with God and spend time with God? The next time the word knowledge appears, it appears in the construction of the tabernacle, a place where God desired to be with man. So God does desire to give man knowledge, but for what purpose? For what purpose does God want to give you knowledge? What was this man's task in Exodus 31? Well, let's look at verse 1. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him. I have filled him with the Spirit of God, in wisdom, and in understanding, and in knowledge, and in all manner of workmanship. In this passage, we see that God filled a man with his spirit, he first filled a man with his spirit, and then following that spirit giving, God also gave this man the knowledge so God would be able to abide with man once again. That's why God gives you knowledge. Knowledge is given to man, and knowledge is profitable. And the pursuit of knowing is profitable. Why? For the sole purpose of restoring man's fellowship with God. The one singular pursuit that God desires for us to have is a pursuit of Him. That we would pursue Him. But as we pursue Him, we need this book. It's His Word. It's His, it's his revelation given to man. It's perfect. It's true in every way. And so I need this book. I need to know him. I need to learn of him. But the sole purpose of me devouring this word, the sole purpose of knowing more about him, 
more about his mission, more about people, more about the lost nature of man is why, so that man could be restored to God again. So why are you doing that Bible study? Why are you meeting with that guy? Why, why, are, you, why are you gathering together, together every other Wednesday night at UMKC, at Rockhurst, at, in your homes, in a coffee shop, at UCM, or wherever it is? I, why are you doing that? I understand that there is, there is a need, and I actually mean this sincerely. There is a need for the equipping of the saints. There is a need for the gathering of the saints of God. There is a need for the edification of the body of Christ. And I do believe that that happens in a miraculous way in small groups. I really do. You're not going to find a bigger fan of small groups, okay? But I, I will say this, that in some way, if those small groups, even if they are primarily brothers and sisters in Christ, if in some way those aren't encouraging us to continue to get the work out into the world, then guys, you're using that knowledge that God has given you in a vain manner. I'm not trying to castigate you. I'm not trying to make you feel bad, but I'm trying to get us to be redirected refocused so then what's the narrative of your, of your pursuit what's the narrative of your pursuit for what purpose are you studying the scriptures guys I've, I've had people in our church different people would know it Blade would know it for sure I've had so many people in the church that have come along with us and man some of them really love that book but I'm telling you this that their mission with that book is not the Great Commission. It's just not. And I'm telling you guys, you will run into that as well, especially if some of you guys are found planting churches or, or in new works throughout the world. You will find people that will want to come to join you, to partner with you, and they'll just say things like, I just love this book, I love this book, and you're going to go, man, well, join us, because we do too. <laughs> we love it as well. And then you'll realize very quickly that their love of the book is not like your love of the book. And it's not revolving around the souls of men. It's not revolving around breaking the chains of bondage that has plagued this world since the fall of man. If you would, please check out 1 Kings 3. It should be on the board. 1 Kings chapter 3, verses 7 through 9. In this passage, Solomon is praying to God as he becomes king. And now, O Lord my God, thou hast made thy servant king instead of David my father, and I am but a little child. What does he say? I know not. I know not how to go out or come in, and thy servant is in the midst of thy people, which thou hast chosen, a great people that cannot be numbered nor counted for multitude. Give to me, give God, therefore thy servant, an understanding heart to judge thy people that I may discern between good and bad. Those are the same Hebrew words for good and evil found in Genesis chapter 2. The very thing that God is saying, I don't want you to touch it. I don't want you to see it. I, now I'm Eve. I'm adding things to it. I don't want you to, I don't want this. I, you're like, huh? I don't know about that. I don't, I don't want you to take in this, this tree. Now Solomon is praying, God, would you, would you give me that knowledge so I can discern between good and bad? And if we were to keep reading, we would see that God was pleased with this prayer. In this passage, we see Solomon actually asking God to give him the knowledge to discern between good and evil. 
This is exactly the thing that was restricted in Genesis chapter 2. And yet God doesn't even flinch. In fact, he honors the prayer. But why? Once again, I don't believe the issue was knowledge. The issue was order. God wanted to give knowledge to Solomon. But in order to have knowledge, Solomon first needed to realize that he needed God. And I believe, and guys, this is conjecture, but I believe that if Adam and Eve would have chosen God, rather than the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and I'm not saying that God would have then allowed them to partake of that tree. I cannot say that. You cannot find that in the scriptures because the only thing that you can find in the scriptures is that that tree is going to kill you. So, so please, I can't say the opposite, but what I am saying is this, that if Adam and Eve would have continued in their right walk with God, do you think that God would have not given them knowledge? The, study it out. Be a Berean. I can't, I'm not going to try to teach you and say that that is the Bible. It's a, study it out. But I believe God actually does want to give us knowledge. I believe he does want us to know of his will, of his way, of his person, of who he is. The issue was order. Solomon first needed to realize that he needed God. Solomon needed to first visit the tree of life before he took on, took of God's knowledge. You see, the issue with the tree of knowledge was that this was not the source by which God wanted to give to man his knowledge. This knowledge, it didn't come from above. So then the giver of life is also the giver of all knowledge. That is if you choose that source. This is key point number two. Key point number two. Our pursuit of God must always precede and envelop any pursuit of knowledge. So often, guys, I've, I've, I've read the Bible or I've spent time in my daily reading and, uh, guys, it hasn't truly been a pursuit of God. You know what it's been? Just a pursuit of my daily reading or maybe a pursuit of knowledge. And I always find that those times where, where I don't begin my time in His Word, when I don't begin reflecting on the person of God and how I need Him in my life, that my study becomes academic and it becomes calloused and programmatic. Now in speaking about life and knowledge, I find it fitting for us to ask the wisest man to ever live what he thinks. And this is where I'd like to finish out our study for tonight. I'd like for us to walk through the book of Ecclesiastes in, a, in an abbreviated manner. In this book, Solomon speaks of a few important topics, and guys, I'm going to try to hit this as quickly as I can, so I apologize if I'm already going long. In the book of Ecclesiastes, he speaks of wisdom and folly. He speaks of vanity and vexation of spirit. He speaks of our labor under the sun. On and on, he speaks of purpose or the lack thereof. And most notably, he speaks of death. In that it doesn't matter who you are, we will all die. In the book of Ecclesiastes, he calls it a great evil that's among us. An evil that has been thrust upon all of humanity and all of creation. And in Solomon, you have an individual, guys, who sought out every pursuit. He sought out every pursuit under the sun, every purpose under the sun. You want to know a man who tried everything, who pursued everything? It was Solomon. If you don't want to listen to me, listen to Solomon tonight. As Solomon sought out wisdom, he found that his pursuit to be grievous and unfulfilling. 
When Solomon sought out wisdom, he found that it was grievous, that it was unfulfilling. Ecclesiastes 1, 16 through 18, I communed with mine own heart, saying, Lo, I am come to great estate, and have gotten more wisdom than all they that have been before me in Jerusalem. Yea, my heart had great experience of wisdom and knowledge, and I gave my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is vexation of spirit. For in much wisdom is much grief, and he that increaseth knowledge increaseth sorrow. In Ecclesiastes chapter 2, Solomon sought after folly and self-enterprise. He sought after the works of his hands. He sought to prove his worth. Which is an interesting, seemingly disparate pairing, folly and, and work. And he found that his efforts to be wholly unprofitable. Chapter 2, verse 3 and 4, I sought in mine heart to give myself unto wine, yet acquainting mine heart with wisdom, and to lay hold on folly till I might see what, that good, uh, what was that good for the sons of men, which they should do under the heaven all the days of their life. I made me great works, I builded me houses, I planted me vineyards. From verse 5 to 8, he continues on this great list of all of his accomplishments. And in verse 9, he says... So I was great and increased more than all that were before me in Jerusalem. He had gained the whole world. Also my wisdom remained with me. Verse 11, then I looked on all the works that my hands had wrought and on the labor that I had labored to do. And behold, everything that I had amassed, this great enterprise and all the fun and the frivolous things and all the laughter and the vacations, and the homes, and the kids, and the jobs, and all the fun. And it was vanity. It was vexation of spirit. And there was no profit under the sun. As Solomon gained all of his wealth and resources, he found it to be of no profit. Later on in this chapter, he recognized that as it happens to the wise man, so it will happen to the fool. Verse 14, and I myself perceived also that one event happeneth to them all. Then I said in mine heart, as it happeneth to the fool, so happeneth even to me. And why was I then more wise? Then I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For there is no remembrance of the wise more than of the fool forever, seeing that which now is in the days to come shall be all forgotten. How dieth the wise man? As the fool. As the fool. Can you guys see where, where Solomon's going? Everything that he is covering. He says, all my wisdom, all my folly, all my work, all the work of my hands, everything I accomplished... And guys, I'm giving you just snippets. If you read through that book, you just, it's boom, boom, boom. Everything that he was accomplishing, and he was the king of Israel. It's amazing. And at the end of his life, he says, and it didn't matter. It was vain. And it was vexation of spirit and it had no profit. But then, all of a sudden, in this dark book, then all of a sudden we see in in chapter 2, verse 24, seemingly out of nowhere, notice this strange shift from Solomon. He's saying, all is vanity, all is vexation of spirit, everything's awful. But then in verse 24, he says, there is nothing better for a man. You're like, huh? 
He's like, life is horrible. I hate it. Everything's bad. Everything I do, it's like the most cynical person. And he goes, but there's nothing better for man. And you're like, what? What are you talking about? There's nothing better for man. And then you're thinking, Solomon, the wisest man ever. What's it going to be? That he should eat and drink and that he should make his soul enjoy good in his labor. What? What? The wisest man ever? This is the remedy? Don't stop. Don't stop reading. This also I saw, that it was from the hand of God. Now that got my attention. In this passage, the wisest man ever to live has just told us to eat, drink, and be merry which sounds like complete indulgence. It sounds like hedonism to, to the nth degree. I think so often we can write off statements like these to suggest that Solomon is just dejected. He's now, as, as an older man, he sees his whole life and he sees all the issues and all the problems and he goes, you know what, guys? You know what you need to do? Eat, drink, and be merry. Because that's, that's what we need to be doing. And I think we can think of like this this dejected individual, and I would say, guys, time out. Time out for a moment. Chapter 1 says, who is talking? The preacher is talking. These are the words of the preacher. He's preaching to you and I. We think sometimes he's now at the point of just not caring until you read the last part of that verse. He says, this also I saw, that it was from the hand of God. Now wait a second. That changes everything. Solomon found comfort in one thing. Guys, I want to say it again. I know I'm reading a story about Solomon right now. and I know I'm reading about Ecclesiastes. But can you guys put yourself in his, in his, in his place right now? Can you guys do that? Yeah, maybe? Yeah, okay, okay. You guys are falling asleep. Solomon found comfort in one thing. One thing. What was that? What was that one thing? Nothing satisfied him. He's the most miserable of individuals. Nothing satisfied him. Nothing. Even though he had all of these wonderful pursuits, even though, man, it looked like from the outside, he had everything that the world could offer. Do you know those people? Maybe you want to be that person. It looks like he has everything that the world could offer, all of these wonderful pursuits, and he found that every one of those pursuits were lacking and that they were unprofitable altogether and that they vexed his very spirit, except for one thing, except for one thing. There was one thing that was life-giving and that one thing came from the very hand of God. You see, once again, the scriptures are showing us, and the wisest man ever, who ever lived, has revealed as well that great joy is only found when we receive from the hand of God. You want to have joy in your life? You want to have a pursuit that actually means something at the judgment seat of Christ? then you better get acquainted with pursuing your Savior and you better get acquainted from receiving from His hand. 
Key point number three is this. Key point number three. Our pursuits always have a destination. Do you guys know that? Our pursuits always have a destination, no matter what. And they will either end in emptiness or great joy. And you get to make the choice. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 12 through 14. I know that there is no good... uh, He says, uh, I know that there is no good in them. But for a man to rejoice and to do good in his life. There's nothing good in man, but for a man to rejoice and to do good in his life. And also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor. It is the gift of God. Did you guys see it again? Did you guys see it? It is the gift of God. And he continues, I know that whatsoever God doeth, it shall be forever. Nothing can be put to it, nor anything taken from it. Sounds like Romans 8, doesn't it? Nothing can, you can't rob from God. You can't take from God. I know that whatsoever God doeth, it shall be forever. Nothing can be put to it. Nothing can be taken from it. And God doeth it that men should fear before him. Once again, we see in what appears to be this most cynical of individuals that he finds comfort in the moving of God and he finds purpose in the doings of God. Please continue with me in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 16 through 22, or 16 through 18. And moreover, I saw under the sun the place of judgment that wickedness was there, and the place of righteousness that iniquity was there. I said in mine heart, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time there for every purpose and for every work. I said in mine heart concerning the estate of the sons of men, that God might manifest them. Throughout all of our pursuits, God is looking to bring them to light, to reveal them to man. For what purpose? That they might see that they themselves are beasts. That we would present our bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is our reasonable service that we would prepare our bodies for the altar of God to be in the presence of God so that at that moment God can say, are you ready to start allowing me to use you the way I want to? God will absolutely bring to light the fruitfulness, I'm sorry, the fruitlessness of reward of your pursuits. And when he does so, will you be willing to repent? Will you be willing to return to the right and worthy pursuit? Will you embrace the gift of God? Will you embrace the reward of God? Will you embrace the moving of God? Ecclesiastes 7, 18 through 20. It is good that thou shouldest take hold of this. Yea, also from this withdraw not thine hand. As the woman in Mark 5 was holding on to the vesture of Christ, for he that feareth God shall come forth of them all. Wisdom which previously had no profit at all to Solomon, is now seen as something that strengthens the wise more than ten mighty men which are in the city. For there is not a just man upon earth that doeth good and sinneth not. As the pursuit of God becomes the wisdom of God applied in your life, the power of God thus shows itself strong on our behalf to become and to overcome the sinfulness of man thus establishing the work of God for the salvation of the world. And this is why 
the pursuit of God trumps all other pursuits. Ecclesiastes 8.17 Then I beheld all the work of God, that a man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun, because though a man labor to seek it out, yet he shall not find it. Yea, further, though a wise man think to know it, yet shall he not be able to find it. Bingo. Only as we are receiving from the hand of God, only as we are receiving from the gift of God, will we be given the resources to understand his great wisdom. Chapter 9, verse 2. All things come alike to all. There is one event to the righteous and to the wicked, to the good and to the clean and to the unclean, to him that sacrificeth and to him that sacrificeth not. As is the good, so is the sinner, and he that sweareth as he that feareth an oath. Are you ready for that day? Are you ready for that day when everything you've worked for is now gone? Are you ready for that day? What will remain? What do you want this life to be about? What is your pursuit? Every pursuit that we have will have an expiration date. And in the end, what will it produce? This is key point number four. Our pursuit of God brings the wisdom of God. And God's wisdom brings power to overcome sin, which establishes the work of God here on earth. But it must begin with us as his people pursuing God first. Our pursuit of God brings the wisdom of God, and God's wisdom brings power to overcome sin, which establishes the work of God here on earth. And let's close with chapter 12, verses 9 and 10 and 12 through 14. And moreover, because the preacher was wise, he still taught the people knowledge. Yea, he gave good heed and sought out and set in order many proverbs. The preacher sought out to find out acceptable words, and that which was written was upright, even words of truth. Verse 12, And further by these, my son, be admonished. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a, weary, is a weariness of the flesh. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of men. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. And key point number five is this. Our pursuits will be made manifest. There is coming a day when every single one of our pursuits will be made manifest before our God. And I'm going to ask right now that every head bowed, every eye closed. There is coming a day, it may be this evening, it may be tomorrow, we don't know, but I will tell you this, I agree wholeheartedly with what Brandon has been teaching us this morning, that if we are the remnant, then what does that mean? If we are the remnant, that means that we are in the last of the last days and and his return is coming, he is coming back for his people, but I am telling you this, that 
It is my desire that every single one of us would be able to bring someone with us. Would to God we would be able to bring someone with us, but that begs the question, what are you pursuing? What is your pursuit? What have you brought with you? What are you holding on to? What are the things that that have been the desire of your heart? I am telling you right now that every single one of our pursuits, there is coming a day where it it will stand before the judgment and it will either burn or it will be refined by the fire of God's holy, just nature. And so right now the question is this. What have you brought with you to this retreat? What pursuits have you brought with you? And frankly, what pursuits need to die tonight in your life? If we could imagine right now you coming forward, some of you need to start coming forward right now, but if we could imagine physically laying down the pursuits that we know we need to stop carrying, I'm asking that you do it. I'm asking that you would right now consider at this retreat, this evening, that of the pursuits that you have been pursuing, that for so many of them, guys, we need to simply do this. We need to lay them down. Maybe I'm being old-fashioned right now, having every head bowed, every eye closed. I know that. I get it. But there's something that can happen when we are bowing our heads, our hearts are now in a position to where we can actually, with our ears, hear it beat. Our head is bowed now as as I'm speaking, and, and prayerfully you guys are in consideration of what God is wanting to accomplish in you and others. And guys, I'm just saying right now, maybe you need to stand, maybe you need to raise your hand, maybe you need to you need to announce it. I don't know what it is. Maybe you need to come forward right now and you need to say, There is a pursuit in my life. There are pursuits in my life that I need to drop right now. That I need to to let go of. I don't know what they are. Guys, now is the time. Now is the time. And maybe for you, maybe as I was speaking of this pursuit of knowledge, and maybe that seemed philosophical or complex in nature, but maybe you have been pursuing as a Christian, as a Bible study leader, as a discipler, maybe you have been pursuing these things, and you've tried to, to calculate some way in which God would be pleased, Brandon would be pleased, Sam would be pleased, your disciple would be pleased, I don't know, in some way you've thought, you know what, I have been pursuing the wrong thing, now's the time to make that change. And so as we sing, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray. As we sing together and worship to our God, this is an excellent time to lay down those idols, lay down those pursuits that you know have no business in your life. Let's pursue God. Amen? Father, I want to lift up this group to you tonight. And I pray, Father, that you would continue to speak to them. Uh, And God, I pray that you would use your word, um, God, to to break hearts. God, that hearts would be broken. I pray to God, I pray pray God that you would uh, show us your judgment seat in our minds, that that we could consider it right now. 
I pray, God, that we could consider what would it be like as we stand before your throne? What would it be like as we stand before the judgment seat of Christ? What are we going to be bringing with us as we stand before you? Will it be hay, wood, and stubble? Will it be all the things that we thought you would be pleased with when in all reality all you wanted was for us to spend time with you? God, I don't know what that is uh, for each person, but I'm praying right now that they would visualize what it would be like to stand before you and that, God, that they would make a decision right now. Oh, God, God, I want this out of my life. So, God, please help. As we sing, I want to invite you down here. Maybe you can sit with someone if you want to pray with someone. Um, There is something about coming forward in front of everybody, though. There really is. There's something powerful about humbling yourself in front of your brothers and sisters in Christ, letting your friends know, letting your brothers and sisters know there's things I need in my life taken out. They need to see that because you know what? Maybe they need to do it as well. Maybe you need to pray right now. Maybe you need to sing right now, but I'm... We're going to enter into a time of worship. And so Uriah, if you would do that, let's praise the Lord. We hope that today's message encouraged you to follow Christ in his word. For more information about Kaya, for service times and information about our disciple-making ministry, please visit our website at caya.live.